0: an owl with large curved horns and ruby and sapphire eyes stares dead ahead as ominous music plays. The lens pulls back to reveal that the owl is carved into the top of an ancient pylon, pictured in a newspaper ad for a traveling museum exhibition. An elderly woman lets out a sound that expresses equal measures of confusion and displeasure, rising at the end, almost as though she's asking a question. She leans forward, peering through an absurdly tiny pair of pince-nez spectacles. She somehow manages to read the words in front of her before blinking several times. The fantasy civilization. The camera pans down to reveal a pink gem-encrusted bracelet around her wrist, whilst also revealing her shockingly unlined cartoon hand. They've returned, haven't they? She asks, rhetorically. She closes the newspaper. With a sigh, she reaches under the table and pulls out a leather case. It lands in front of her with a decisive thud. Doll nights, I have hoped that I would not need to open this box, but I have no other choice. The case looks like it could contain top-secret documents, or maybe an antique typewriter. But it holds... Neither. Three dolls lie against the pale green fabric lining of the box. Doll Lika, you're needed to protect your mistress. Grandma picks up the center doll and addresses it with the utmost seriousness. The doll has wild pink hair and wears a military uniform of sorts, a structured jacket with a high collar and fluffy epaulettes. The grinning doll's right eye twinkles, as though in response... I got you, Granny. And so opens Super Doll Likachan, as it premiered on Tokyo TV in 1998. Hello and welcome to History Unhemmed, a podcast that delves into and unravels the sometimes shiny, sometimes sinister side of fashion and dress. I'm your host, Felicia. Join me in taking a closer look at sartorial scandals, tailored taboos, troubling trends, controversial couture, and other wrinkles in fashion history. If today's episode leaves you wanting more information, be sure to check out a list of resources posted in the show notes wherever you get your podcasts. Some of our content may be disturbing, inappropriate, or perhaps just a tad bit complicated to fully grasp for younger audiences. I also have the occasional potty mouth and a tendency towards some super cheesy wordplay. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the third installment of my adventure down the rabbit hole, that is, the history of the fashion doll. Two episodes ago, I began with the introduction of dolls for the express purpose of showing off clothing, as opposed to, say, ritual objects or baby dolls. Unlike baby dolls that were rather specifically geared towards teaching young girls about motherhood, The 20th century fashion doll represented adult women and thus, through imaginative play, encouraged girls to dream about their futures outside of the realm of domesticity. One thing that has remained consistent over centuries was the fact that with them, it really always comes back to the clothes. Dress has always been associated with things like power, wealth, status, and influence, as well as a means of navigating one's identity. All of these are entwined with fantasy and aspiration. Dress tells stories and oftentimes those are tales we'd like to be living if we're not already. Think of the adages we've all heard, dress for success, or dress for the job you want versus the one you have, or consider for a moment the profound effects even a small makeover can have on one's outlook. I ended last episode with the most famous fashion doll of the 20th century, and I suppose now 21st century. Barbie, like her predecessors, including Sweet Sissy and Sultry-Billed Lily, had an extensive wardrobe, which was a major selling point for the doll. Barbie's debut outfit in 1959, that quintessential black and white one-piece swimsuit, was designed by Charlotte Johnson. And for decades after, the Mattel poster girl had a wardrobe designed especially for her, primarily by Carol Spencer. As a teenage fashion model, the title with which Barbie was introduced to the world, what she wore was of paramount importance, to the point where Mattel sent Spencer to New York and Paris to attend fashion shows for research. This resulted in some pretty big looks for such a diminutive diva, including a 1962 roomy red jacket and matching hat inspired by Balenciaga and Dior runway looks. But don't think for a moment that Barbie's relationship with fashion has been one-sided. On the contrary, over the course of her nearly 65-year career, Barbie has collaborated with numerous brands and fashion labels. Over a hundred, actually. Barbie most recently partnered with French fashion house Balmain. She's worked with fashion heavy hitters from Donatella Versace to Karl Lagerfeld, Vera Wang, and Jean-Paul Gaultier. She's repped Diane van Furstenberg and rocked one of the designer's signature wrap dresses, and collaborated with Moschino in 2015. In 2019, Barbie partnered with the chic streetwear brand Kith to celebrate her 60th birthday. And in 2004, get ready for it, she worked with Juicy Couture, the two dolls, representing the brand's founders, Pamela Skates Levy and Gillian Nash Taylor, are garbed in modified versions of the consummate Y2K tracksuit. Barbie also collaborated with Mac Cosmetics, De Beers Diamonds, and Christian Louboutin. Each of the super fabulously dressed Louboutin dolls has shoes with tiny branded shoe bags and signature boxes. I for one have some serious aspirations regarding Barbie's shoe closet. In 1990, Barbie began a partnership with the King of Glitz himself, Bob Mackie. Mackie, who had designed iconic looks for Cher, Marilyn Monroe, Tina Turner, Carol Burnett, and Dolly Parton, would create over 20 looks for Barbie. Let me tell you about that first Bob Mackie Barbie. Her blonde hair is piled high, streaming down from a golden headpiece. The whole thing bringing to mind Madonna's towering, blonde ambition to her ponytail, which incidentally had not quite happened yet. Her dress is adorned with 5,000 hand-sewn sequins and an elaborately beaded, criss-crossing, midriff-revealing bodice. The look is accessorized with a fluffy white boa, huge gold earrings, and cuffs that match the dress's bodice. The look is capped off with gold pumps. Mackie didn't just pay attention to the doll's garments, but was involved in the entire look of the doll itself, including its hair and face. In 2003, Mackie created a look for Barbie's 45th anniversary that featured a black metallic brocade gown with a fantastical sculptural silhouette that had huge embroidered swirling forms extending far above her right shoulder, up behind her platinum hair, and down across her back, reappearing near her left foot. Black gauntlets and large rhinestone earrings offset the ensemble. Most of his designs included elaborate headpieces, Swarovski crystals, or hand-sewn sequins. Bob Mackie's dolls continue to be popular with Barbie collectors, and many still resell for hundreds of dollars. Barbie's high fashion partnerships really began in 1984, when she collaborated with none other than Oscar de la Renta. The Dominican-born couturier worked at Lanvin and Balmain before making a name for himself dressing the likes of Jackie Kennedy, Hillary Clinton, Michelle Obama, just, just to name a few. He created a line of sparkling gowns and chic ensembles for Barbie from 1984 to 1985. There was a gleaming blue evening gown with a billowing skirt and chiffon flowers at the shoulder and waist. It came with a matching cape and evening bag. He also created a fuchsia and gold color-blocked dress with enormous sleeves that would make any of the ladies of Dynasty green with envy. And maybe a little slap-happy. Did I mention the dress also had matching fuchsia pumps and a cape? Oscar de la Renta and Mattel collaborated again in 1998 on an opulent limited-edition doll. Her dark hair is done in an elaborate updo adorned with a beautiful golden topaz tiara. Her large earrings match said tiara. Her dress is a full-skirted ball gown in gold brocade, supported by a fluffy tulle petticoat. The bodice of the gown is overlaid with a dark chocolate lace. The cuffs are trimmed with fur, and a satin bow and a gold topaz stone accentuates her waist. A matching brown lace wrap is draped over the doll's shoulders. Oscar de la Renta and Mattel would partner up a third time on a wedding Barbie. So, fun fact: Despite wearing a handful of wedding dresses, Barbie never actually officially got married or had babies of her own. This was a deliberate decision on the part of Ruth Handler. Robert Best, senior design director at Barbie, confirmed this, saying, quote, Barbie is the only girl who can have a closet full of wedding dresses without ever walking down the aisle, end quote. Released in 2016, two years after Oscar de la Renta's death, the Barbie's blonde tresses are pulled back in a low bun and she wears an ivory strapless lace gown with a gorgeous soft blue overlaid skirt. She wears a silver and pearl brooch and matching earrings, which are exact replicas from Oscar de la Renta's spring 2014 bridal runway show. The 1980s also saw Barbie collaborate with artist, model, and jewelry and fashion designer Billy Boy. Billy Boy had a jewelry line, Surreal Bijou, that counted Madonna, Diana Vreeland, Michael Jackson, and Elizabeth Taylor among its clients. He was a huge Barbie fan, going so far as to write a book, Barbie, Her Life and Times, in 1988. And he was said to have had a collection of over 11,000 Barbies and about 3,000 Kens. Billy Boy's collection contained about 50,000 antique fashion dolls and examples of vintage haute couture. Billy Boy also reportedly has the largest privately owned collection of Elsa Schiaparelli couture. So incredibly jealous. Billy Boy was friends with Andy Warhol, and the latter even did a portrait of him as Barbie. So let me explain. Billy Boy actually did not want Warhol to paint him. He reportedly said, quote, I do not feel like having another picture of me, by Andy to boot. Anybody could have that, as long as you could afford it. I suppose he wasn't incorrect there, but damn. Billy Boy later relented under one condition, telling Warhol, If you really want to do my portrait, do a portrait of Barbie, because Barbie, c'est moi. And so Andy did. His 1986 painting Barbie Portrait of Billy Boy shows Barbie against a powder blue background which Warhol dubbed Billy Boy Blue. Billy Boy ended up selling the portrait in 2014 through Christie's and it fetched a cool 722,500 pounds or 1,161,760 US dollars. Billy Boy designed two Barbies for Mattel in 1984. There was the Le Nouveau Théâtre de la Mode Barbie, a nod to the momentous 1945 exhibition that helped resuscitate French couture after World War II, which I talked about last episode. In 1985, Billy Boy organized a traveling exhibition with the same name that was sponsored by Mattel. The show toured France by train and had Barbie's modeling incredible looks by leading designers of the day, including Kenzo, Yves Saint Laurent, And Christian Dior. Like its predecessor, some almost four decades earlier, the show was a hit. The Nouveau Déâtre Barbie came in a black and gold box, displaying Billy Boy's signature in gold, of course. The doll was the epitome of 1980s Manhattan glam, with her blonde hair tied back with a black ribbon that matched her black, long-sleeved midi dress with princess seams and exaggerated shoulders. Barbie paired the dress with sky-high black heels, black sunglasses, and an opulent gold chain necklace. Barbie also had gold hoop earrings and a right wrist bedecked in gold chains. Some of the dolls have black nail polish, while others do not. Billy Boy also designed 1986's Feeling Groovy Barbie. Feeling Groovy Barbie rocked a black ponytail and bangs, and a fantastic fur-trimmed iridescent jacket, with a prominent collar. A hot pink closure at the waist of the jacket is mimicked in the doll's oversized earrings. She wears a satin strapless tube dress, also in shocking pink, a nod to his idol Scaparelli perhaps, with slits up each side, and a string of jet beads hangs from her neck. The outside of the box reads, designed by Billy Boy, internationally famous designer. Billy Boy created a number of prototype dolls while working with Barbie, pioneering the customization of fashion dolls. You can find people doing this today all over YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. In 1998, after a rift with Mattel, Billy Boy quit. Disillusioned with the toy industry, he and his partner, Jean-Pierre Lestrade, also known as Lala, started their own doll company, Midvani, in 1988. They released the eponymous doll in 1989. Unlike Barbie... Midvani made no pretense about targeting adult buyers. This was not a toy for children. The entirely handcrafted doll bridged the gap between toys, art, and fashion. Billy Boy and Lala were channeling the elegant Parisian dolls, or poupée de mode, of yesteryear, er, yestercentury. Everything about the doll screamed Luxury. For her first fashion collection, Billy Boy designed 34 looks inspired by classic Parisian couture. He sought out the finest wool tweeds, silk prints, brocades, and satins. For the doll's jewelry, he used pearls and semi-precious stones. Even the doll's garment hangers were gold-plated. As for the dream house, Midvani had homes, plural, built by French cabinet makers with inlaid wood and marble. These went for over $20,000 a pop. The doll's face was painted by Mel Odom, and fashion illustrator Rene Gruau helped create the packaging and drew the cover of her catalog. The first Midvanis were made of resin and stood about ten and a half inches, or almost 27 centimeters, tall. In 1991, the company switched to polyester resin, and in 1994 to the more luxurious porcelain. Sold at high-end retailers like Liberty & Company in London and Bloomingdale's in the United States, Midvani was also available via specialty catalogs and had buyers around the world. Midvani was also quite anatomically correct, with painted nipples and a dot of strategically applied black paint to suggest the presence of pubic hair. Of course, such a thing, the human body, is viewed by some people as controversial. (gasps) Gasp! In fact, at least one magazine that was printing an article about the doll reportedly refused to include her picture until a piece of lace was placed over the crotch, like underwear. In much the same way the neck ribbon and mules emphasize the central figure's nakedness in Edward Manet's 1863 painting Olympia, the lace actually makes the doll look more naked. Billy Boy and Lala wanted Mitvani to be the embodiment of a super sophisticated post-feminist lady who, according to the 1990 New York Times article, embodied glamour and was, quote, the sensibilities of the 90s encased in a shimmering gold brocade couture dress. Beautiful enough to be a model, smart enough to be a biochemist. Rich enough to give generous gifts to her favorite charities and to support the arts. End quote. Billy Boy described her as looking gorgeous in a strapless dress while reading works by philosophers of the Enlightenment. She can, quote, wear fabulous necklaces of uncut stones and still understand existentialism. She is the first doll to prove that you can be sexual and beautiful, but not a bimbo. She's an intellectual. It's high time a doll started behaving in a soulful, spiritual way, end quote. He describes the doll as a voracious reader who volunteers at hospitals and wants to educate the public on issues like AIDS and climate change. While Barbie may have been the most popular fashion doll in the United States, she had competitors at home and across the globe. On the home front, competition took the form of other fashion dolls, some of which had features like adjustable hair length, In 1963, American Character Doll Company introduced the appropriately named Tressy, whose thick blonde tresses could go from long to short. Emphasis without the aid of scissors. Like Barbie, Tressy is advertised as a teen fashion model and even has the same side-glancing eyes. Conceptualized by the furniture designer Jesse Dean, the doll has joints at the neck, arms and legs, and a delicately painted face. Tressie was produced in the early 1960s in the UK by Palatoy. Ideal Toy Company ended up buying the rights to Tressie from American Character Doll, but she wasn't their only hair-growing doll. In 1968, Ideal would start work on Chrissy, a youthful-looking fashion doll with long reddish-brown hair and bangs. Chrissy made her public debut in 1969 and would remain on store shelves until about the mid-70s. Barbie didn't take off everywhere and the UK was one example. Along with the aforementioned Tressie, UK toy buyers had Cindy. Cindy, spelled with an S, was released by Pedigree Dolls in 1963. While Cindy was a hit with the Brits, she didn't fare so well when Mark's toys tried to introduce her to the American market in the 70s. Remember them from last episode? Eventually, the American toy giant Hasbro bought the rights to Cindy and gave her a new look. That ended up backfiring, and after going to court with Mattel over copyright infringement, Hasbro took Cindy back to the drawing board and gave her a new face entirely. Cindy was advertised as Cindy the free-swinging girl that every little girl longs to be. Cindy has sports clothes, glamour clothes, everyday clothes, a dog, skates, a gramophone, everything. Every genuine Cindy outfit is a child's dream come true. Each one is designed for today's fashionable young women by today's leading women designers. They are authentic miniature replicas of the latest adult clothes. Barbie didn't immediately take in France, either. The French company, Gégé, debuted the Miley doll in the early 1960s. This poupée mannequin, or fashion doll, dominated in France until Mattel France formed in 1972 and Barbie cornered the market. Gégé went bankrupt in 1979. Gégé was founded in 1933 and was among the companies that produced boudoir bébés or boudoir dolls that I discussed last episode. In the 1950s, it was Gégé which innovated and initiated the extensive use of plastic, notably for toy cars. They used rhodoid, a plastic that replaced celluloid, which had been highly flammable, before eventually switching to polychloride vinyl. But back to Mademoiselle Millie. Mealy's features were less severe than that of early Barbie's, her eyes were a bit smaller, and unlike her German and American cousins, she looked directly forward, rather than from side to side. Her arms were strung, meaning they fell more gently and less rigidly against the doll's body. Like Barbie, Mealy had a book series about her adventures that buyers of the doll could get their hands on if they sent in a coupon that came with the doll. Millie's wardrobe also took a more homespun approach. She had fabric undergarments and came with a more simplistic wardrobe that included quite a bit of gingham. Her shoes were always the high-heeled peep-toed mule. Snow outfit, peep-toed mules. Raincoat and umbrella, peep-toed mules. You get the idea. On the other side of the world, another toy maker was getting in on the action, creating a doll for its own local market. On July 4, 1967, Takara Tomi Toy Company in Japan introduced Lika-chan. Takara is also known for toys like Transformers. Barbie was available in Japan. However, Lika-chan had a cute factor that captured the hearts of Japanese children. While Lika was a modern fashion doll that shared many attributes with Barbie, the fashion doll was not a new idea in Japan at all by this point. Isho Ningyo, literally fashion or clothing dolls, had been popular in Japan since the early part of the Edo period, which lasted from about 1603 to 1868. The term ishoningyo applied to a range of dolls that displayed a variety of aspects of Japanese Edo period life and culture, ranging from fashions of the day to elegant courtesans who dictated said fashions, to historical figures and characters from legends and mythology, as well as those drawn from kabuki, no, and puppet theaters. These dolls were also displayed for their elaborate hairstyles and carefully rendered faces. Unlike the Pandoras of Europe, these dolls typically carved from wood were less didactic in nature and more rooted in amusement. They were meant to be admired. They were intended to promote Japan's textile industry and the latest fashions. They displayed lavish silk brocades, silk and cotton velvets, new weaving techniques, as well as hemp cloth and gauze and put various new production techniques front and center. Think new dye methods, using paper to reinforce metallic threads, etc., etc. Yukio or Fuzuko dolls were among those isho to appear in the early part of the Edo period. Fashion arbiters of the day were usually actors or famous courtesans or oiren. Guidebooks and woodblock prints frequently featured them in elaborate dress. In fact, these prints were called yukiyoi, and the ishininyo were often described as three-dimensional versions of this body of work. This appealed to women who could afford to dress in such a fashion, but doing so openly flouted restrictions imposed by the government. Sumptuary laws were enforced throughout Edo Japan in order to keep class lines defined and to reduce unnecessary spending. Ichimatsu ninyo were a type of isho ninyo that can be traced back to Sanagawa Ichimatsu, a renowned and famously really ridiculously good-looking 18th century kabuki actor. Similar to today's models of celebrities, dolls were created that resembled the actor, and they became quite popular among fans. Ichimatsu ninyo eventually evolved into toys that could be dressed up and loved by children. Nowadays. Ichimatsu ningyo mainly refers to dolls of young girls wearing kimono with bobbed hair, and which are made to be displayed. In the 20th century, Japan had their own plastic it girl. Lika-chan was developed by Miyako Maki, who had made a career for herself as a manga artist. While the term manga goes back a bit further in the history of Japanese art, the term I'm using here refers to comics and graphic novels originating from Japan in the late 19th century or so. The word in Japan can refer to both cartoon images as well as a comic format. Maki was a pioneer of shoujo manga, and later of the more adult-geared genres of gekiga and redekomi. Shoujo manga was originally aimed at a target audience of girls and young women between the ages of about 10 and 18. These tended to include historical drama and or supernatural or magical themes. There's usually an idealized romance and some kind of coming of age aspect. Manga like Sailor Moon, Cardcaptor Sakura, and Fruits Basket fit into this genre. I know I'm probably giving my age away here, but hey, these are classics. When the doll debuted in 1967, she had brown curly hair that framed her face with bangs. Her hair color would eventually lighten to honey blonde, but also take on hues like pink and blue. According to her backstory, Lika-chan's full name was Lika Kayama, and she was born on May 3, 1967, making her a Taurus, to a Japanese fashion designer mother named Uri and a French musician father named Pierre. Marriage between a Japanese and non-Japanese person was first permitted and legally recognized in Japan in 1873. In the United States, interracial marriages would not be federally protected until June 12, 1967. Lika-chan's life story would be rewritten a couple of times and would become the basis for the 1998-99 anime Super Doll Lika-chan, which followed the life of a girl named Lika Kayama and her protector, Doll Lika. Human Lika discovers that she's the princess of the doll kingdom and must protect said kingdom from the evil dragon, Deval. By most accounts, Lika was said to be about 11 years old and a student at Shirakaba Gakuen Elementary School. Lika's favorite books are Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery and A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett. She's also a fan of the cartoon Dorimon. In the late 1990s, Takara partnered up with the London based record company Rough Trade Records to create a DJ look for Lika called Street Lika. She wears a pair of pink Converse sneakers, gray leather pants, and is rocking a layered hoodie look. Takara would eventually release adult versions of the doll. In 2001, they debuted a Lika doll in the form of a very pregnant mother-to-be. Called Hello Baby, the doll came with a bib, rattle, and other necessities for an infant. It also came with a postcard that the buyer was to send back to the toy company. Once sent, the buyer would receive a little baby doll wrapped in a bunting about two weeks later, allowing the child slash buyer of the doll to share in the fun of waiting for the, quote, birth. The baby would arrive with the mother and child health handbook and some other accoutrements. A key would also be included so that the buyer could remove the pregnant belly from the doll. (sighs) If only recovering from pregnancy were so easy. Lika's look is more kawaii, the word in Japanese for cute. Kawaii is more than just, say, calling something sweet in appearance. It plays a huge part in Japanese pop culture today, including a number of fashion-oriented subcultures. Kawaii covers everything from clothing to food to cartoon characters like Hello Kitty and even things like home goods. Subcategories of kawaii include areas like guru and yume kawaii, which incorporates elements from the horror genre and dreams respectively. The latter is characterized by pastel colors, but also has the potential to incorporate imagery from nightmares. The fashion designer, Mary Quant, whose designs had graced every major cover girl of the 1960s, including Jean Shrimpton and Twiggy, designed a Likachan doll to commemorate Quant's 50th year of doing business in Japan. Incidentally, Quant's frequent muse... And collaborator, the famous model Twiggy, also known as Dame Leslie Lawson, was the first real person to be made into a Barbie in 1967. But Lika wasn't Quant's first foray into the fashion doll world. In 1973, Mary Quant released the Daisy Fashion Doll. The doll got her name from Quant's signature flower logo, which had been born out of doodles produced by Mary when she was a child. It was sort of a design starting point for her, from which other ideas surfaced onto the sketchpad page, if that makes sense. The Daisy thus represented personal and creative freedom, which became an important aspect of the Mary Quant brand. Remember, she was synonymous with upheaval and social change associated with youthquake in the 1960s. The Daisy doll was given the tagline, a girl's best friend, and was touted as the best-dressed doll in the world. Daisy, with her cloud of hair that ranged in color from blonde to red, had hundreds of clothes and accessories, and all of them were designed by Quant. Her wardrobe included a snazzy boiler suit, long satin evening gowns, flared pants including actual denim jeans, faux fur jackets with matching hats, boho maxi dresses, cute mini dresses, and t-shirts made of cotton, stretchy jersey, nylon, and polyester. Her wardrobe included floral patterns, stripes, and polka dots. And her shoes. Daisy had platform clogs and sandals in every color of the rainbow. And go-go boots, of course, with the Quant logo, her namesake Daisy, on the side. While Daisy was a groovy chick with a fold-out camper van, her home life was pretty fancy, all things considered. She had a split-level country cottage that included a full set of crockery and cutlery, pots and pans a working battery-operated oil lamp, a pillow and comforter made of white nylon covered with pink roses, a Chesterfield armchair, a bentwood coat rack, and her dining chairs were based on architect and industrial designer Eero Saarinen's famous tulip chairs. Daisy was manufactured in Hong Kong in the 1970s by Model Toys Limited and Flare Toys Limited. Flare Toys Limited dissolved in 1980, but Daisy continued to be manufactured until 1983. Today, the Mary Quant brand still exists, and the name of Daisy is still invoked in a line of beauty products called Daisy Doll. Quant started producing makeup back in 1966 and continues to do so to this day. While Barbie was created with aspirational interests in mind, her very conventional white beauty standards left something to be desired, something more than skin deep. In 1939, Dr. Kenneth Clark and his wife Mamie ran a social experiment in New York with four baby dolls. Two of the dolls had light skin and two had dark skin. In the experiment, the Clarks handed black children the four baby dolls. They then asked the children questions. These included, which dolls are nicer? Which dolls are good? Which dolls are bad? And which doll is most like you? The results were heartbreaking. Most of the children said things like, the black dolls were bad and the white dolls looked more like they did. To the Clarks, these tests provided proof that segregation affected the children negatively and deeply. The Clarks' findings were used in Brown versus the Board of Education, resulting in the desegregation of American schools in 1954. In 1966, Mattel debuted Francie Fairchild, who was supposed to be Barbie's mod cousin from England. This Francie was white, with brown gidget hair that flipped up on the ends. A year later, Mattel released another version of Francie, one, they didn't mark it as Barbie's fun European cousin. They basically took the same mold and created another doll with the darker complexion. No other differences. Yeah, no, try again, Mattel. A year later, in 1968, Mattel did just that. This time with a new face mold, and Christy was born. Christy is often considered to be the first black doll in the Barbie-verse, and remained very popular until she was discontinued in 2005. In 1969, Mattel released Julia, using the same mold that they used to make Christie's head. Julia was based on the popular TV character portrayed by Diana Carroll. Mattel was not the only toymaker on the block, however, and 1968 saw the start of Shindana Toys, headed by Lewis Smith. Shindana Toys was a division of Operation Bootstrap, an endeavor to rejuvenate the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. Shindana Toys was one of the first companies to create ethnically accurate black dolls. The word Shindana comes from Swahili meaning to compete. Along with dolls of black celebrities, Shindana's plastic it girl came in the form of career girl Wanda released in 1972. Wanda had a range of professions from ballet dancer to race car driver, to nurse, to singer, to professional athlete. Each box contained a little pamphlet explaining its shown profession and featured photos of real black women doing whatever that career was. The idea was to encourage black children to pursue their dreams. Wanda was the first fashion doll mass produced by a black owned company in America. The bulk of Wanda's wardrobe was designed and created by the mother and daughter's team, Doris, Lynn, and Tuesday Connor. Unfortunately, Shandana was forced to close up shop in 1983. In May of 1985, Professor Wyla Eason started the company Olmec Toys Incorporated. It would become the largest minority-owned toy company in the U.S. Eason was inspired to go into the toy business when her son, then three years old, came to her in tears because he had been told that he could never be a superhero like He-Man, whom he idolized. The reason? the color of his skin. Eason partnered with artist Floyd Cooper to produce an action figure she called Sun Man. Sun Man was not just a black version of He-Man, but a character in his own right with his own backstory, which included getting his power from the melanin in his skin. When she approached retailers, Eason was met with a lot of racism and rejection. So instead, she went straight to black consumers. In a December 1986 interview, she said, quote, I contracted beauty and barber supply reps who worked the Black Mon Pa stores across the country to sell the dolls. It became a kind of grassroots operation that caught on, end quote. Eason was able to get backing from actors and activists Ruby Dee and Ossie Davis. Eason and Olmec understood the importance of representation and created toys that reflected diverse communities, including Black, Latino, and Asian dolls and action figures. Olmec coined the phrase ethnically correct, referring to a doll's appropriate skin color as well as its sculpted facial features to accurately represent each doll's ethnicity. Olmec introduced Naomi, their first 11 and a half inch fashion doll in 1988. Within a year, Olmec had to pull her due to naming right issues, but they pretty much re-released the same exact doll under the name Elise in 1989. Elise was replaced with Imani in 1990. Imani debuted in a pink one-piece and striped cover-up, and her face was modeled after Eason's own. In 1991, Hasbro teamed up with Olmec, intending to bring Imani to wider audiences. This was due largely to Olmec's success, and the changing racial and ethnic demographics documented in the 1990 U.S. Census. In 1991, Imani was presented as a black counterpart to Hasbro's white Cindy doll, whom I mentioned a little bit ago. During this partnership, Imani's little sister, Alicia, was released. Hasbro injected about a million dollars into Olmec during this partnership. When describing Imani, Eason told the American Journal of Play, quote, People would say there is a black Barbie doll, but even though she had a different name, she was known as Black Barbie. And since we are not black versions of white people, you should have a separate doll. That is where Imani came from. In 1984, Olmec had its product line in many major retail stores throughout the country, but it went bankrupt within several years. As for Cindy, who had been struggling in the 1990s, in 1997, Hasbro gave the rights to the doll back to Pedigree, which made the original Cindy doll in 1963. Cindy changed hands again, and in 1999 was re-released by Vivid Imaginations, and again in 2003, her 40th anniversary, this time by New Moons. Mattel introduced a black Barbie to the market in 1980. The doll was designed by Lavinia Kitty Black Perkins. Perkins was born in 1948, and grew up in segregated South Carolina. She didn't own a Barbie doll during her childhood. She actually bought her first one to prepare for the job interview at Mattel. She began working for the company in 1976, and was Mattel's first black designer. She would become Barbie's principal designer in 1978, creating over 100 looks a year over the course of her career at Mattel, which lasted until 2003. That is a ton of tiny garments and accessories. Black Barbie represented a doll created for Black audiences by someone who understood Black beauty standards, rather than you know simply imposing white Western beauty standards on everyone else. That that's never been done before. Perkins also designed the three dolls Asha, Shawnee, and Nichelle that comprised the Marvelous World of Shawnee, which debuted in September of 1991. The Marvelous World of Shawnee was based off research by Dr. Darlene Powell Hobson and her husband, Dr. Derek Hobson. The Hobsons wrote the book different and wonderful, raising black children in a race-conscious society, advising black parents on how to address racial issues and to promote self-esteem in their children. They were instrumental in the development of toys like black dolls and were aided in their research by their daughter, Datiana, then four years old. Datiana noticed right away that some black dolls were merely white dolls with a coat of paint. Asha, Shani, and Nichelle each had her own individualized face mold with more ethnically correct black features. These dolls were also slightly curvier than the traditional Barbie, but not too much more since Mattel still wanted them all to be able to share clothes. Asha, Shani, and Nichelle also did not have the same skin tones and hair textures as one another. They would eventually be pulled in 1993, but Shani would go on to be adopted into the Barbie-verse. 2009 saw the introduction of Barbie Sew in Style, a line of black dolls designed by Stacy McBride Irby, the protege of Kitty Black Perkins. The dolls, Grace, Courtney, Kara, Kiana, Trishel, Zahara, Chandra, Janessa, Julian, Marissa, and Darren, featured a range of skin tones, hair types, etc. They were meant to represent a group of friends living in Chicago and their little siblings. McBride Irby would eventually leave Mattel and strike out on her own with the Pretty Girls line of dolls. Unfortunately, they ultimately folded. Sew-in style would be discontinued in 2017 due to larger branding changes at Mattel. The first Hispanic Barbie entered the American toy market in 1980. She came with the cringy tagline printed in English and Spanish on the box. Dark eyes, dark hair, she's a Barbie doll just for you. The doll wore a Spanish-inspired ensemble and was really quite vague in her execution. In 1988, Mattel introduced Teresa Rivera as their California dream doll. Teresa was so popular that Mattel made her into Barbie's best friend. She's also the most heavily featured doll next to Barbie, showing up in a range of outfits on store shelves and in a number of the cartoon movies and shows. Made about Barbie, including Barbie Life in the Dreamhouse. She's often portrayed as a genius and tech whiz. Weirdly enough, she wasn't in the Greta Gerwig movie. Sounds like a missed opportunity. Maybe the sequel. The first Asian Barbie would be released in 1981 as part of the Dolls of the World collection. They were presented as a sort of cultural safari in a stereotype-filled train wreck. For example, Oriental Barbie that's what she was called, was decked out in a gold sum or cheap pao, with red trim and a red and gold jacket. The box reads, quote, hello, meet Barbie from Hong Kong and learn about the Orient, end quote. Barbie's official website emphasizes the doll's, quote, long slender dress and lustrous black hair, end quote. I hope no one listening to this podcast still uses that antiquated term to describe another human being, Oriental Barbie is definitely a product of the early 1980s. Asian American issues were still being largely ignored. The doll speaks to a time, one still not entirely over, in which Asian Americans are inherently made to feel both foreign and homogenized. Vincent Chin's murder took place in 1982, a year after the doll was released. Chin, a Chinese-American, was mistaken as Japanese and murdered by two white auto workers who took their anger at being laid off and the increasing demand for Japanese cars out on him. The murderers didn't serve any jail time. Chin's murder spurred action and is often regarded as a watershed moment in Asian-American civil rights in the United States. Oriental Barbie's face mold was also used to create the 1985 native Hawaiian doll Miko. Yeah, what the fuck is right and eventually the generic Asian-American friend, Kira, who turned up sometime in the late 1980s, early 90s. I want to say it gets better over the years, but not really. The Dolls of the World line continued through 2012. Indian Barbie released in 2012 comes, quote, Bollywood ready, end quote, with a little, quote, monkey friend, end quote, perched on her right arm. The Chinese Barbie comes in a tight-red chi or chungsam, cuddling a panda. I wish I were making this up. The outfit in question is one that many women of Chinese descent living in Europe and North America have a complex relationship with, to say the least. I have a whole episode dedicated to that topic, which I will share soon enough. Japanese Ken, the only Ken doll in the Barbies of the world line, is advertised as being, quote, both handsome and exotic, end quote. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word exotic as, quote, from or in another country, especially a tropical one, seeming exciting and unusual because it seems to be connected with foreign countries, end quote. The word in itself, totally fine to use to describe plants or animals. I repeat, plants or animals, not people. In modeling, the term is almost always applied to women and basically translates to sexy with an olive or golden complexion. There's definitely a sexual and fetishistic element to it, and the suggestion that someone is desirable because they are foreign or alien is a form of othering. Othering is when one views or treats someone as intrinsically different and alien to oneself, which fosters a set of dynamics, processes, or structures that engender marginality and cause inequality to persist across a full range of human differences based on group identities, these protected identities like race, gender, sexuality, etc. Using exotic to explain someone's physical attractiveness is focusing on certain, usually ethnic, features lustrous black Asian hair, a la the aforementioned Barbie friend, or curvy black and brown figure stereotypes. Exoticism racializes the narrative of an individual's beauty taking away that beauty's freedom to exist on its own terms. Today, Mattel has over 170 different Barbie dolls with different hairstyles, colors, and textures, in a rainbow of skin tones. They've also launched wheelchair accessories, a doll with vitiglio, and another with a prosthetic leg. While a few Ken dolls have gotten in on the action of diverse representation, he clearly hasn't gotten the main character treatment. To use the 2023 movie poster catchphrase, She was everything and he was just Ken. Dolls, particularly fashion dolls, had been targeting young girls. However, young girls were not the only ones interested in fashion dolls. In fact, fashion dolls representing men have been sparse at best. Gay Bob was introduced in 1977 by Gizmo Development and produced in Hong Kong as the world's first openly gay doll. Gizmo Development was headed by former ad exec, Harvey Rosenberg. Rosenberg put more than $10,000 of his own money into the doll and was, by all accounts, not gay himself. That said, in multiple interviews, he stated that the doll was intended to help liberate men from traditional sexual roles. Rosenberg believed that regardless of a person's sexuality, the doll could serve as an example for having the courage to, quote, come out of the closet, and quote, and be your true self authentically. He also pointed out in the same press conference that Gay Bob was a spoof of other, quote, amorphous sexless dolls, end quote. Probably a jab at Mattel's ken. And yes, Gay Bob was anatomically correct. It was actually because he had defined genitals that American toy companies would not produce him and that Gizmo had to look overseas. Bob, who stood about 13 inches tall, was presented in a flannel shirt, cowboy boots, and jeans. A gold chain hung around his neck and he sported an ear piercing. He accessorized with a leather bag. With his closely cropped blonde hair and chiseled jaw, he was presented with the quarterback-next-door kind of good looks one might think of in relation to the various Marvel Chrises, Hemsworth, Pine, Evans. When he came out, the actors in mind were Robert Redford and Paul Newman. While Bob had a mother, father, and two brothers referenced in his advertising material, the other dolls were sadly never produced. Bob was sold via catalogs and boutique shops in cities like New York and San Francisco. The first 2,000 dolls flew off the shelves to mostly adult collectors. Rosenberg produced 10,000 more, and those didn't last long either. Gay Bob came with a catalog of clothes, giving him the potential to become a real fashion doll. Sadly, however, that potential was never realized because no one ended up ordering the clothes, probably in part due to the high price point. Gay Bob came in a box designed to look like a closet. It read, Hi boys and girls and grown-ups, I'm Gay Bob, the world's first gay doll. I bet you're wondering why I come packed in a closet. Coming out of the closet is an expression which means that you admit the truth about yourself and are no longer ashamed of what you are. A lot of straight people should come out of their straight closets and take the risk of being honest about what they are. People who are not ashamed of what they are are more lovable, kind, and understanding. That is why everyone should come out of their closet so the world will be a more loving, understanding, and fulfilling place to live. Gay people are no different than straight people. If everyone came out of their closets, there wouldn't be so many angry, frustrated, frightened people. It's not easy to be honest about what you are. In fact, it takes a great deal of courage. But remember, if gay Bob has the courage to come out of his closet, so can you. Bob also came with a pre-recorded message that he would play. Quote, gay people are no different than straight people. If everyone came out of their closets, there wouldn't be so many angry, frustrated, frightened people, end quote. Well, while this probably could have been phrased a bit better, Bob came into being during turbulent times. The doll was received with some laughter, but the environment that he emerged from was anything but kind to gay people. Bob entered the toy market less than a decade after the Stonewall riot of 1969. The uprising at the Stonewall Inn nightclub in New York was a monumental event protesting police harassment and one of the major catalysts for the push towards LGBTQ rights in the United States. The Black Cat Tavern protests in LA happened two years prior to Stonewall in 1967. Well, Bob's message may sound earnest and brave, though more than a little problematic, the early 1960s saw the end of the Hayes Code in film. The Hayes Code was very restrictive and forbade the presence of interracial couples on screen, as well as limiting the way in which LGBTQ characters could be presented. The Hays Code was replaced with the Motion Picture Association of America rating system, or MPAA, which may sound a bit more familiar to listeners today. In fact, Rosenberg parodied the movie rating system on Gay Bob's box. The outside of the box displays a PG rating. While queer identities were beginning to enter the public sphere, discrimination was a major issue. 1977 saw the election of Harvey Milk in San Francisco, the first openly gay man to be elected to public office in California. He was assassinated in 1978. The gay Bob doll was heavily protested by the likes of the hateful, fear-mongering Anita Bryant, founder of Save Our Children. Bryant and her followers ran around spewing nonsense that gay people were recruiting and abusing children, and a lot of people listened. Her bullshit got several states to backtrack on legislation that was intended to protect the rights of LGBTQ plus communities. Bryant's ministries were led by Edward Rowe. Rowe saw Rosenberg's doll as evidence of the desperation of the homosexual campaign has reached its effort to put the homosexual lifestyle, which is a death style, across to the American people. I can only hope that the children who are given these gay Bob dolls will not comprehend the meaning and intent the meaning and intent of the campaign that is behind their manufacture and distribution. Poor Bob remains single and alone for decades. The only romantic partner option for Bob was another gay Bob doll. Well, maybe Ken maybe that's what happened after Barbie ditched Ken for Blaine in two thousand four. We can only hope that Bob found at least a little bit of love, regardless. 1993's Earring Magic Ken, which came with a pair of earrings reading Barbie and Ken for his human companion, also raised a few eyebrows in this direction. Trying to break Ken out of the somewhat stodgy and preppy persona that he'd been sporting since his debut in 1961, Mattel hired a panel of experts, namely a group of girls between the ages of five and six, to figure out what cool meant in the early 90s. The result was a version of Ken with bleached highlights, in club wear, including a mesh shirt, sporting a ring in his left ear, and around his neck, he wore a silvery necklace featuring a prominent chrome ring. That ring got a lot of attention, but probably not the kind Mattel had hoped for. People immediately began to speculate that Ken had come out. Author, journalist, and LGBTQ activist Dan Savage wrote an entire column about it when the doll debuted. Savage wrote, quote, Hanging around Ken's neck on a metallic silver thread is what 10 out of 10 people in the know will tell you at a glance is a cock ring. End quote. Cock rings had made their way into public by way of dress, particularly in association with the gay pride movement. They gained popularity in the 1970s and were worn during political protests. Against the rampant discrimination faced by AIDS patients in the 1980s in an effort to destigmatize gay sex. Lesbians were also wearing them as zipper pulls, bracelets, and like Ken, on necklaces. By the early 1990s, cock rings were not uncommon accessories on the club scene. Naturally, Mattel reps vehemently denied that Ken was wearing a cock ring on his neck. It's also probably safe to say that none of the 5- to 6-year-old girls that Mattel hired for input deliberately said, Cool! Ken should wear a cock ring necklace. That didn't happen. That said, MTV was new and still playing music videos. The kids might have seen Madonna's backup dancers wearing them on TV, if an older person in the house was watching. Anyone who spent any time at all around children knows that they are generally little information sponges. And if an older sibling is watching or consuming something, the little ones want in on it, too. In 1997, the toy company Totem International introduced Billy. Though Bob had been bopping around since 1977, Billy claimed to be the first out-and-proud doll. Billy was modeled after the artist John McKitterick. Billy also had a clothing catalog. His boyfriend Carlos, who's Puerto Rican, was introduced a year later in 1998. In 1999, Billy and Carlos gained a new friend, Tyson, who was the first Out and Proud gay black doll. All of the Out and Proud dolls featured complete anatomy. Billy coming out parties were thrown in clubs in New York, Miami, Chicago, San Francisco, and Los Angeles in 1997. Two years later, in honor of the 30th anniversary of Stonewall, drag personas of Billy and Carlos were released. These were named Dolly and Carmen. Billy, Carlos, and Tyson ceased production in 2001. In 1995, Percy Newsom founded Integrity Toys to expressly challenge the lack of diversity in the doll industry. Fashion designer Jason Wu got in on the action in the year 2000. Wu and Integrity released their first joint collection called Fashion Royalty based on sketches that Wu did while studying and working in Paris. Each doll is exquisitely and glamorously rendered. Fashion royalty includes a range of facial features and skin tones, and each doll has her own little backstory. The bodies of the dolls are anything but naturalistic, more evocative of a fashion sketch croaky, or the body on which clothing designs are sketched. While a normal human body is usually drawn between 7 or 8 head heights tall when stacked up, fashion ones can be a bit more exaggerated, anywhere from 8 to 12 heads tall. Fashion royalty definitely follows this set of super elongated proportions. Wu and Integrity would also join forces in the production of a line of six RuPaul dolls, as well as a doll of Drag Race All-Stars Season 3 winner, and super fitting for this podcast episode, Trixie Mattel, complete with blonde hair teased up to heaven and topped with a big pink bow. The doll wears a pink mini-dress with a psychedelic print and dramatic flared bell sleeves, She comes with a guitar and tiny versions of some of her hit records. Today, the number of fashion dolls around is mind-boggling. I feel like I've just been able to scratch the surface with three episodes. Seriously, I could do a fourth, but we'll spare you all that for now. Fashion dolls are firmly embedded in society and in popular culture. Think Angelica Pickles and her doll Cynthia on Rugrats. Or that time Lisa Simpson partnered up with Malibu Stacy's disillusioned founder to launch her own feminist Lisa Lionheart doll. Dolls have changed clothes countless times over the centuries, and will only continue to do so. Thank you for listening to today's episode of History Unhemmed. History Unhemmed is hosted, written, and researched by me, and produced by Gary Avazov. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook and leave us a review. Also, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you're interested in supporting the show, we are on Patreon and Spotify for Podcasters, formerly Anchor. Links are in the show notes. If you wanna know more about a specific topic or just wanna say hello, Reach out to us on social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook. Or drop us a line at historyunhemmedpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening.